Darkcast Network. Welcome to the dark side of podcasting. Welcome to Creepy Tapas, where we do the opposite of deep dives and bring you tiny tastes of terror connected by a common ingredient. True stories to haunt and chill you and the pop culture they inspired. Or at least the movies and books that remind us of them. Join us as we descend into darkness. Beginning with the lighter side of our weekly topic. And wrapping with a full dark, no stars account of terror, madness, murder, and more. It's Creepy Tapas, y'all. Ring, ring. Hello. Um, hey, dude. I'm uh, I'm super busy. Can you call me later? What? You called me. <laughs> no, no, I, I didn't. Yeah, you did. Oh. Well, is your refrigerator running? <laughs> I'm what? Go and uh, you, you know, you better go and uh, get it. Wow. Have you checked on the children? I only have one, and yes, he's fine. Uh, <gasps> were you uh? Um, Do you like scary movies? Bambi. No. Scary movies. I prefer animated films and musicals. What you know what? Fuck it. If you're not gonna take this seriously, click. <sighs> you just made Ghostface hang up on you, pal. Nice. That's what's up. I don't think we can introduce this episode any better than that. Truly. What truths lie beyond the imagination in a world where reality is often more horrid than fiction? Come along, ghoul fiends, as we descend into darkness on today's episode of Creepy Tapas. Greetings, ghoul fiends. Welcome to this week's exciting episode of Creepy Tapas. I'm Ash. And I'm Jordan. It was Jordan's anniversary. Happy anniversary. Mm. You found the person you're gonna be with for the rest of your life through thick and thin. da na 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 anniversary. Thanks, pal. <laughs> it was That's, my anniversary. That is my gift to you. Well, thank you. We had a really nice evening. What'd y'all do? We went to the melting pot. It was delicious. I love that place. What'd you guys get? Mm, all kinds of shit. Did you get that Mountie cheese? The four course meal for two. Uh, Yeah, we had spinach cheese. And I had steak and shrimp and all kinds of wonderful stuff. I tried duck. It was gross, but I tried Damn. it. Uh, and then we had this chocolate fondue that they lit on fire and put some nuts in it. God, it was so good. Fuck, man. Flambe. Oh, my God. It was so good. That sounds fucking delicious. Mm. Well, that's awesome, dude. I'm glad that you guys had a uh, a really nice night together. You know, a little, little extra than a date night. Getting to go to the fancy schmancy. Mm-hmm. Fancing it up. Maybe you heard Scream 6 is dropping this week. What, what? Ooh. I have my ticket already. I don't. Well, I'll be working on the road. So sadly, I'll be enjoying this one by myself. But I get to go to a fan event and I'm excited about that. You know, I noticed that on the bottom of the ticket, it said that you couldn't wear a mask or a costume. It was like masks and costumes prohibited. And I was like, oh, no, it's the beginning of Scream 2. They go see Stab 2, and it's like the fucking guy gets killed uh, in the bathroom stall. Oh, and then yeah. Jada Pinkett Smith gets murdered in front of all the people in the cinema. Man, that was a fucking dope, dope opener. Yeah, it was pretty good. But I saw Cocaine Bear. Oh, yeah? How was it? Oh, my God. Dude, it's amazing. It's fucking amazing. I had so much fun 
watching that movie. It is ridiculous. It it's funny. It doesn't take itself seriously, but like the effects are good. Like the bear looks really good. You don't need to have a bunch of jump scares and shit for it to be scary. Like people are getting mauled by a fucking bear. There's a couple pretty graphic uh, sequences. You know, it's funny too. Like it made it made me and like everybody else in the theater laugh. So that's always, you know, and you can nice. have like a really good time. So I, I loved it, man. I loved it. It's really, I think you're going to like it. It's fast paced. It's, um, it's fun, man. It's fun. Well, cool. Yeah. I am excited to see it. It's excited for you to see it too. <laughs> is it? The movie's excited for it, me to it see is. it? It is. I talked to it. You know what else is excited for me to see it? What? Blood and Honey. I still have um, not been able to see this damn movie. Yeah, I haven't seen it either. I keep looking for it, but... You know, I heard that it's very disappointing. People have said that it was trash. I'm sure it'll be streaming at some point and we can uh, see for ourselves. Yes, yes, that is true. It probably is pretty crappy, but... Eh, You know, what are you going to do? Watch it. (laughs) I mean, I'm going to watch it regardless. Um, It depends on if it's the right kind of cringe. Yeah, that is true. Because it could be really funny and people just be trying to take it too serious. Man, I feel like people expect so much out of a horror movie nowadays. You know what I mean? That is true. Sometimes it can just be a fucking slasher. Sometimes it can be senseless violence or just like about a really gross, weird alien that makes no sense. Like, who cares? Like, just let it let it happen. It's fun. It's somebody's creative vision. Sometimes it could just be a doorframe or a ceiling. You brought it to Skin and Marink. I was going to bring it to Knock at the Cabin that (gasps) some movies I've seen this year are not my favorites. But yeah, Skinnamarink, fuck that movie so hard. It was terrible. But it was. that's it was so boring. Yeah. I'm glad that we saw it together. I've, I've said it before and I say it again. I'm so lucky I was there with my friend. I probably would have right. walked out if it wasn't. Like, I, I can't imagine. Well, I would have maybe stayed just out of sheer curiosity that something maybe might have happened. You Right. Well, that was the only reason I kept my interest peaked was because I kept waiting for something to happen. <laughs> maybe. Just maybe in one of the next surely before long it periods ends. of nothing, something will happen. <laughs> surely before it ends, something will happen. Surely. Nope. It was trash. It was garbage. Oh my god, darling, get it away from me. I can't. I can't. <laughs> You're garbage. Today, we're going to jump right in and talk about Scratch. <laughs> yeah, just diving on in. I'm struggling to see the humor in all of these poor teenagers getting killed like this. <laughs> I don't understand what's funny about it. It looks well, like they're in a lot funny. of pain. They're screaming very loudly. <laughs> they are. They are upset. Now, this episode is coming out the Sunday before the film's release date on March 10th. So if you're listening to it before then, we have no idea who is actually the killer, but we have ideas. I do we though? <laughs> I mean, we'll talk about it after we talk about the movies. Okay. I have ideas. Do you well, have ideas? Have. Maybe. Yeah? Maybe. All right. We'll go through we'll go through it and, and then we'll talk about it. In 1996, Wes Craven rebirthed the slasher horror genre with Scream. I want to say that one more time. Rebirthed the slasher genre. What weapon does Ghostface use when he isn't using a knife? A gun. Still a slasher, right? Yeah. I'm putting emphasis on that because there seems to be a lot of folks out there who think that X or Terrifier 2 are problematic because of the use of guns in a slasher, which is nonsense. So, okay. Anyway, 
Instead of deep diving all the individual films, we're going to slam you with some fun facts from all five of the films so far. Scream! 1996. Starring Neve Campbell, Courtney Cox, and David Arquette. Directed by Wes Craven and written by Kevin Williamson. And that's the last time I'm going to say that until part five, because it applies to parts one through four. This modern horror classic is somehow both frightening and funny. I will always remember feeling a connection to our friend Randy when he paused Halloween to explain the rules of horror movies, which is a runner that we get in every single film. We'll go over those with a little bit more detail later because they're really fun. Wearing ghost face masks and stabbing your front door. They're a maniac, maniac on the floor. Basically, the first scream is about this girl named Sydney Prescott, and her mom has been recently killed, and she's kind of in the middle of grieving her when all of a sudden, kids that go to her high school start getting picked off one by one, picking them off one by one in middle-class suburbia. Wes Craven provides effective tension as well as hilarious self-parody moments as the body count mounts. But the victims aren't always so obvious. Each movie has its own twists and unique qualities that make them all fun. Instead of giving a breakdown on all of the films, I thought it would be cool just to give you some fun facts I found instead. The film has developed a large cult following over time because of the first 20 minutes, now consistently regarded as one of the scariest openings in film history. The first 12 minutes of Wes Craven's Scream plays homage to the opening of When a Stranger Calls. We all know and love the opening scene in Scream where, spoiler alert, Drew Barrymore is killed right away. She was super famous at the time and the top billing star of the film. Everyone thought she was the protagonist, and it was super shocking when she was murdered in such a brutal way so quickly. Right at the fucking beginning. Oh, my God. It was intense. And I remember um, the first time I watched Scream, I was, t- you know, I was, I was like 10 or 11, right? And I was at a sleepover, and they'd rented it, and we were having like a pizza party, and they'd rented it, and it was this big deal because I think like the movie just came out on rental, so we were like, oh, so excited. <laughs> yeah, guys, you used to have to wait. <laughs> Yeah, like a really a long, long time, time sometimes. It took yeah. forever for movies to come out on VHS. Dude, and then you had to get on like a list. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, because pe- all kinds of people were waiting to rent them. Yep. So anyway, they got Scream and we were all way too young to be watching it, but the parents were like, you know, cool. So they let us do it anyway. I, <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say it now, but whatever. I was a cute little kid and I called my mom and I was like, mom. Because the scene with Drew Barrymore scared me. And I was like, there was this girl, and I'm pretty sure he killed her, and I need you to pick me up. What? It's a bad movie. It's a bad movie. And she was like, all right, sweetie, I'll be there. She came and got me. Uh, All right. (laughs) I was was freaked out. Yeah. I didn't like it. It's really intense, that opening scene, dude. If you're a little, for an 11-year-old, that's fucking intense. (laughs) Yeah, I was probably 13 or 14 before I watched it. Oh, right on, right on. Well, it was it was a pretty badass scene. Uh, you know, Drew was originally cast as the part of Sidney Prescott. Would have been a totally different movie. Yeah, it would have. Drew told Sean Evans in a YouTube interview for Hot Ones, In the horror genre, my biggest pet peeve was that I always knew the main character was going to be slugging through at the end, and they would always creak by and barely make it. I wanted to change that, so I asked if I could play Casey Becker to take that comfort zone away and inform the viewers that the rules do not apply in this film. That's my Drew Barrymore. (laughs) 
Nice. So in that crazy ass scene, the phone that Drew was using was actually a real telephone that was connected to a working landline. For whatever reason, nobody disconnected the phone line while they were filming. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. So Drew actually dialed 911 and oh, called no. the police for real. <laughs> Oh, no. Whoops. Whoops. <laughs> as far as the wild emotional scream she gives when she first sees Ghostface and when she's being, you know, murdered, Drew said she read a news article earlier, uh, like right before they started filming, about this horrible dog owner who lit their own fur baby on fire. Oh, my yeah, God. I can't even. Mm. It's disgusting. Um. So Drew thought to herself, I am the one lighting the match to get herself all worked up. And that's how she got like, ah! like, because she's really whew, pretty wild. But fuck that dude who lit his little baby on fire. Fuck that guy so hard. Like, he sucks. Yeah, it's fucked up. Gross. The film was originally intended to be a one act play about a girl who gets menacing phone calls from a home invader. Kevin Williamson, screenwriter, said he wanted to do a one act, which then turned into a short film, which then evolved into the franchise that exists today. While filming, the title was Scary Movie, you know, like the parody series that would launch years later. You remember Scary Movie? Oh, yeah, I love those. Fucking hilarious. <laughs> yeah, so funny. Oh, well, producers at Magnolia Pictures told the director they had to change the name. They were inspired by a song by Michael and Janet Jackson. Scream became the title and the crew at first hated it. They did eventually come around to the idea. And now if you ask anyone, they can't imagine the film being called anything else. I mean, I, I feel like, yeah, Scream, like that's, it'd be dumb if it was anything else. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, I mean, it, it is kind of what it is now, though. It yeah. would be weird if it was anything else, because that's all we've known it as. Because that's all we've known. <laughs> Wes Craven did not initially want any part of this production, but he had no regrets in the end. He really got to express himself in this fun, violent, and smart modern thriller, and I'm really glad that he did, because I love these. <clears throat> there are many moments in the film that pay homage to Wes and his filmography. Fred the janitor wears a Kruger sweater, and all the kids have a conversation about Nightmare on Elm Street, commenting that the sequel sucked, which is really funny because they weren't directed by Wes Craven. In Scream 2, there's another Freddy Krueger sweater hanging on a doorknob. And in Scream 4, there's a cinema club that has posters of his work all over the walls, including a Hills Have Eyes poster. We see Freddy Krueger in the trailer for Scream 6 as well. A super fun moment where the kids are on a subway. It looks like they're there on Halloween night. And there's loads of people dressed like characters from horror films. And there is even a Freddy Krueger. And I really, I really dug that. I was like, oh, look, there's a pinhead. And Scream 2, 1997. This is the movie where it really started getting meta. And like we were talking about earlier, the opening scene is so much fun with, uh, you know, they're going to the premiere of Stab 2. Stab, a film franchise inspired by the best-selling novel by Gail Weathers, is taking the world by storm. 
we sort of get introduced to this world where the film recognizes this movie within a movie. And I I don't know, it's just really wild and really cool because like everything in our world exists in that world. But the sequel superseded everyone's expectations and it's widely regarded as one of the best horror sequels to date. Sydney is off to college, but the trauma of her past is not letting her escape so easily. They began shooting six months after Scream was released and it came out just a little over a year after the first one. The movie in the movie, Stab, was filmed by Roger, Robert Rodriguez, who we all know and love from movies like From Dusk Till Dawn, Sin City, and lots of other ones. Neve Campbell at this point was super in demand. She Did was con- calling her Neve. Neve, Nev, <laughs> Neve. How do you say it? It's Nev Campbell. Nev Campbell. Oh fuck! <laughs> the first time. <laughs> yeah. You're funny. I know how to pronounce Sydney Prescott. There you go. That's what matters. Nev Campbell at this point was super in demand. She was concurrently shooting Party of Five. So she would be on the set of Scream 2 all night and go straight to the Party of Five set, often with little to no sleep in between. During the shoot, the cast had no idea who the killer was. They were not allowed to see the final 10 pages of the script until it was time to shoot them. The script was printed on gray paper to prevent the use of copy machines, and of course, huge confidentiality agreements were signed by everyone. However, despite all the best efforts, there was a leak. Yeah, even with the tight shooting schedule, they had to rewrite scenes the same day as shooting. Oh. I would be fucking pissed. I would be <gasps> so mad. Yeah. So mad. I mean, back then, what year was it? 1997. So we didn't really have, yeah, we didn't really have like social media. Probably ran in like a magazine. Yeah, like an underground publication or somebody, um, you know, sold copies or wrote it down mm. or just told someone over the phone. Back called them sneaky snakes. Around. Come here and I'll tell your bitch ass the spoiler to this fucking movie, you fucking trash boy. <laughs> Trash boy. <laughs> Where are you rambling on about? <laughs> Did you say 80 bucks? I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> Neve. Nev. Nevdity Neve. Nev. Have you never heard anybody pronounce her name? I'm sure I have at some point, but <laughs> definitely not Neve. <sighs> Do you want a recording of that yawn? Yes. I'll put it in the beginning of the podcast and be like, Welcome listeners. You are now entering sleepy space with your host, Jordan. And then like I put on a movie that's really great and you just fall asleep and we record it. Feel free to ignore the artwork of others. Put your feet up, relax, fall asleep. It's really a poignant movie playing in the background just really softly and then like you snoring. No, it'd be like Criminal Minds playing in the background. <laughs> The victim was found stabbed and assaulted in the alley behind the grocery store. (laughs) The perpetrator had apples inside of their anus. He was using them as like butt beads. Some really big beads. So yeah, there was a massive leak. So even with the tight shooting schedule, they had to rewrite scenes the same day that they were shooting them, which left actors and crew with no idea what the plan would be for the day or what was going on until they were playing the scene. That must have been really frustrating. Jeez, man. It's probably kind of difficult to uh, act that shit out spur of the moment. Yeah, that's why they make the big bucks, right? It would be like, pressure's on, motherfucker. (laughs) Speaking of plot changes, actor Elise Neal, who played Hallie, 
impressed the casting director so much, she was originally cast as the killer. In the original script, Hallie and Derek were written with a Bonnie and Clyde dynamic. Part of the reason Derek is a huge red herring in the film is because of the last minute script changes. He and Hallie both seemed a little suspicious on my rewatch, even before I knew this fun tidbit. Also, Matthew Lillard makes a cameo appearance in the background of a party scene at a college, which tells me maybe he's still alive. He survived. He survived. Maybe he turned, uh, you know, state's evidence over on Billy Loomis Ooh, and got maybe. him pled out, you know? Maybe. Hmm? Sometimes they make deals. And he was already feeling like he was saying remorseful shit, like, as he was, like, he wasn't thrilled with what he was doing. I could imagine him doing that. So, <laughs> I think he might come back. Maybe, just maybe. Maybe, maybe. I love how they have the secret cast member in the new one. That that always excites me. <laughs> I'm like, ooh. <laughs> Who's the secret this time? Right? Scream 3. In the year 2000. <laughs> In the age of our Lord, the year 2000. <laughs> Scream 3. <laughs> we were. We were. The world was supposed to end and it didn't. And uh, Scream 3 came out instead. Yay. Have you, uh, which which ones have you seen? One through three? Yeah. Right on. So you've not, you didn't like three very much? Um, Honestly, I know they're a little bit different and it's, di- you know, different people every time or whatever. But they, they kind of got repetitive for me. Right on. Yeah. Well, I can't fault you for having a wrong opinion, can I? It's okay. I mean, I'm sure I'll watch it. I just there for a while and didn't watch them. Well, I uh, I've had I've had time, so I just binged them too. Like I rewatched everything because you know. Um, I wanted yeah, to see, do the episode. I ain't got time like that. So that's why I do the <laughs> watching. Um, but you did a lot of writing in this episode. So, mm-hmm. you know, instead of taking place in Woodsboro or at a college campus, Scream 3 takes place on the set of Stab 3, which is gaining popularity so much. Sydney Prescott's life of trauma is constantly put on display. The media, fictionalized accounts, there's fans of Ghostface. They don masks as a costume and have ceremonies and fun parties about her trauma. And it seems like Sydney, who is now a crisis counselor for an abused women's hotline, is doing much better since the events of Scream 2. I think Scream 3 is the most meta of them all, but not in an annoying or bad way, in that fun way that I don't think you can do anymore without it being just like too cheesy. (laughs) So when they, spoiler alert, kill Randy in part two, fans were livid. An early draft of Scream 3's script saw Randy coming back, suggesting he did not die of his injuries. In the end, they went a route I was in love with, where Randy appears posthumously on a video to tell us all the rules of a horror trilogy. Love you, Randy. Once again, never, Campbell. Wow. (laughs) Never. It auto-corrected her name. Never, Campbell. Uh, Nev. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so it's like never without the R. Yes, precisely. Okay, so once again, Nev Campbell was super in demand and busy during filming. Working full-time on Party of Five and Drowning Mona, Nev was only able to dedicate 20 days to shooting. That is insane. This is why Sydney... Yeah, she barely fucking was... <laughs> there, <Right. laughs> you know, I'm that's why available. Yeah, <laughs> well, she was doing two uh syndicated shows. Yeah, I mean, 
That's yeah. There for a while, she was on all kinds of shit. Mm-hmm. She was, man. She was. Well, I thought she it was, was so like, funny that you mispronounced her name. <laughs> Neve. I've always said Neve. I guess <laughs> I have been saying her name wrong since the nineties. <laughs> You're funny. Since last century. Yeah. Oh my god. Ages ago. <laughs> well, anyway, she was only there for damn old twenty days, and that's crazy. What? So that's why Sydney is not as prominent of a character. And it seems we follow the exploits of Gale and Dewey a little more in this one. Maybe Nev actually got some sleep while shooting it, but I doubt it. Uh, yeah, no, she probably <laughs> was just fucking completely running off steam at that point. Like, huh, I'm here. I'm here. That's probably why she looked all war torn through the movie. Because she <laughs> what? was. <laughs> Hadn't eaten or slept. Like, uh, actor zombie. Terrible. Yeah, it sounds awful. But during that time, you could probably earn enough money for the rest of your life if you're smart. Yeah, that's true. I'd work, I would work disgustingly hard for like a year or two if I could secure for the rest of my life. I'd do it. I'd be like, sorry, y'all. See you in a minute. Yeah. Gotta go. (laughs) I will zoom with you. I will buy us a robot that you can control around and I will FaceTime with it. Nice. Just the same. Ash robot. That's right. <laughs> Speaking of Gail and Dewey, the pair were married in real life. You probably yeah. knew that the Courtney Cox and David Arquette were uh, married for a short period. They sure um, were. Yeah. They tied the knot one month before filming for Scream 3. Here's a fun little character detail. Sydney has been through the pain of loss in violent and sudden ways, so it's not surprising that she would be grieving. If you look closely, she's wearing a necklace throughout the film with the Greek letters associated with her former boyfriend, Derek's fraternity. A little reminder she's dealing with the loss. She's been through so much shit. I mean, like, even at this point of the movie, dude, like, her mom was murdered, most of her friends in high school, her boyfriend, who she, like, really loved in college, college that's not even to say anything of like all the shit that goes down in this movie like her best friend gets killed like oh my god yeah. I, i'd stay the fuck away from her if i was all right i'd be Seems like be no it's sydney prescott like i'm getting no, the fuck away you. from her people die around you <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. I love the scene where Ghostface chases Sydney through the set of Stab 3, which goes back to the original Woodsboro murders. The sets from the original film had been destroyed by this point, so they had to rebuild. Wes Craven, not wanting to waste this effort, added the scene where Ghostface is running after Sydney through the set, which is fun because you see her childhood home as well as the final party house where Billy and Stu reveal themselves in the original to be the killer. Killers, plural. They weren't two <laughs> small boys in a <laughs> trench coat. They were. And they might have been one singular killer. <laughs> they might they have were, been. You know what? They were both under that robe together. They might have been. Well, There's no evidence at any point to suggest that they weren't. That's true. I mean, except so, they would have been a whole hell of a lot smaller. Sometimes they were. Well, it, right, then, maybe the movie we'll... was shot. The cinematographer was like six and a half feet tall. Mm, well, there we are. That's probably what was going on. <laughs> That's why Nev's twin sister, Neve, was so tiny. <laughs> Uh, it's not a name. <laughs> they switched so that she can handle peeing on Party of Five Drowning Mona and Scream. Wasn't she in Wild Things, too? Yeah, she was. I think her boobs were in that. <laughs> well, 
Her boobs are attached to her. (laughs) Speaking of Nev Campbell, she had a bit of an accident when she was hitting Skeet Ulrich or Billy Loomis with an umbrella in the first one. She missed his padding and hurt him for real during the take. You would think such an experience would make you exercise more caution in scenes like that. But a similar incident happened during filming in Scream 3. Nev's amazing aim saw her smacking Scott Foley's pads with an ice pick and she missed his (laughs) and just hit him which must have hurt like a motherfucker because Scott's scream in the take is 100% real oh and she was like my bad sorry sorry I'm sorry I didn't mean to do that whoops (laughs) I'm like really tired Uh, my twin sister has been bothering me and we're trying to juggle three massive jobs right now so and I just have really bad aim most of the franchise up to this point had been a bloodbath the films never shied away from graphic brutal and bloody deaths the Columbine massacre which was a piece of recent news when this was in production the studio deemed it inappropriate and asked for bloodless on screen deaths Wes Craven went to bat for the red stuff but ultimately the studio one with the on-screen deaths being pretty tame all things considered another deviation from the others scream three is the only movie so far where there is only one killer one two and four all have bloodlusty duos haunted by the leaks of the last film wes craven decided to take another route to keep the finale secret he wrote and filmed three different ending scenes with three different sets of killers not until the film was released did anyone not even the actors not the crew nobody i wouldn't guess but the editors knew who Ghostface was. Nice. Potential choices, but didn't know what he was going to go with. Yep. And I guess it could have been anyone. I mean, that's like six six people in the cast. Like, that's true. You know? <laughs> that is true. It's one of these six. Like, you're, you're basically like having the same amount of accuracy as Joe Fuck on the street, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. Yes. Scream 4. Scream 4, winner of the most kills in a Scream movie so far. And again, we are recording this before 6 comes out, but it will be released in a few days. Yay. (laughs) Sydney's tragic life seems to know no limits. Back in Woodsboro, she wrote a book. Out of Darkness, a novel she wrote about her experiences with all the folks trying to murder her through the years. <laughs> There's a cut scene, and if you consider those canon, Sydney lost her father at this point as well. Dewey tells Gail in regards to Sydney's book signing event. It's her first time back since her dad died. Poor Sid. She is officially an orphan. Although this film told a story of a solid marriage and passion that Dewey and Gail shared, in real life, David and Courtney had divorced a few months before shooting this one, so they pulled a Fleetwood Mac. (laughs) They did. Scream 4 was sadly the final film Wes Craven had any involvement in. It was meant to be the start of a new trilogy. The plan was moving ahead in Wes's final years with a few half-developed possible concepts for the final three films. Wes passed away in 2015, making Scream 4 it. So, boo. We miss you, Wes. Speaking of those we loved and lost, did you notice the memorial statue of Principal Hembry? He was the Fonz principal from Scream 1 who gets killed by the ghost face. If you look closely, there's a statue of the late principal in Woodsboro High School. It's kind of fun. It's like a little bust of him. Wes Craven let us know Kirby may still be alive. The best friend archetype, the odds were never really in Kirby's favor. 
When Ghostface stabs her multiple times in the gut, we all assume that was curtains for Kirby. Not so fast. Wes says on the commentary track. There was originally a scene we cut that shows her surviving all her injuries in the end. As you can see, Hayden was still moving. Which makes me think some theories from the web may not be wrong. Autumn's Oddcast told us they think Kirby is coming back to be the killer in part six. And Hayden is confirmed in the cast list. So we will see her maybe she's working in cahoots with mm-hmm, the person maybe. that i think is cahootin'. the killer yeah cahootin cahootin them all cahootin tootin and cahootin well rootin tootin wah, cahootin wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> farts with my cohorts <laughs> scream but scream five i mean come on now it's scream five <laughs> yeah so <laughs> just in case you don't know here's like a spoiler free uh summary this is from Scott Filtenborg on IMDb. Like the original movie 25 years ago, a cute teenage girl is at home alone when the phone rings. A man wants to play a game with her. With the threat of killing her best friend, Tara is forced to play along. She barely survives the ghost-faced, masked intruder's stabbing. Her five-year-older sister, Samantha, who left home at 18 due to mental problems... Sam's boyfriend and Tara's high school friends visit her at the hospital. Later on in a bar, a guy provokes the friends and is later attacked outside the parking lot by Ghostface. Sam receives a call from him at the hospital, and then he unsuccessfully attacks her. She later reveals family secrets to her sister. Sam contacts one of the original victims, Dewey, for help. He warns two other original victims, Sidney Prescott and Gail Weathers, about Ghostface being back. Who is Ghostface? How many more must die? Dun, 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 ah. <laughs> How many more? <laughs> this one stars Melissa Barrera. Nev. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Look, you pause it. Yes. That's it. You got it. It's not Neve. Uh, Just don't say Neve in your pocket. <laughs> <laughs> I really want to. <laughs> I'm going to say it. I feel like I'm going to say it. Uh, Melissa Barrera, Neve Kim. No. No. Nev. <laughs> Son of a starring Melissa Barrera, Nev Campbell, and Courtney Cox, directed by Matt Batinelli Olfen and Tyler Gillet, and written by James Vanderbilt, Guy Busick, and Kevin Williamson. The film was released on January 14th, 2022, being 25 years and 25 days since the original film's release date, which came out on December 20th, 1996. This film was released 11 years after Scream 4. Scream 4 came out 11 years after Scream 3. Scream 3. Oh, wait. 11 years after Scream 3. It would have been 10 years if this film hadn't been delayed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Wah, wah. Release date got pushed back because nobody can go see your movie in a closed-down theater. Nope. Wouldn't have made a difference. Flash. The first Scream film not directed by Wes Craven, who passed away in August of 2015 from cancer. Wes Hicks's character is a walking reference to Wes Craven. His name is the obvious spot, but pay attention to his phone number. His phone number includes 1939, Craven's birth year, 1939. The first two films feature flash cut shots of Ghostface acting menacing before the end credits. Here there is a flash of Ghostface honorably wiping his blade with his head bowed in a respectful fashion in honor of Wes Craven. It was Kevin Williamson's idea to dedicate the film to Wes, and it's what finally brought him onto the project. Some copies of the movie even included a pre-show clip of Ghostface warning the audience against revealing the ending to others, threatening that. We take spoilers dead seriously. (sighs) 
Like all previous four Scream films, Roger L. Jackson is actually on the phone with the characters as Ghostface, and it was tradition that he never uh, see the actors, so the actors didn't see him throughout filming. He would always be like behind a set piece or something while they were talking to him. The guy who did the voice, the um, guy who's the voice of Ghostface. Um, he was always hiding. David Arquette, who is a certified Bob Ross painting instructor, taught several of the cast members how to paint like the legendary artist during film breaks. <laughs> so they were painting happy little trees. This is a lot of information about Scream. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> was just making a comment. How much more is there? Um, I Holy. just had. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Dang, hell. We'll skip to this last one. That's I didn't know that you were so unfamiliar with with Scream. Yeah, I stopped after three because they got repetitive. Maybe a handful of times. The first, second, and third one. Maybe once or twice. So I didn't want to look at any fun facts about the new one because I don't want to mess anything up for me. But I really like my theory on who the killer was. Um, I think that it might be Stu Mocker or Sidney Prescott. How about you? Do you think they're going to introduce a new character? Or do you think it's going to be someone new? Uh, no, it'll probably be one of the recurring people. Yeah. Because why else would it follow him to New York if it wasn't one of the people that already knew about it? Yeah, probably. But then again, there's like social media and stuff. Well, that's true. You know. So here's some thoughts from Instagram. SpookyBoo20 said... I always thought that it would be a great twist if eventually Sydney herself finally snapped and was the killer herself. Hell yeah. I'd what? fucking agree with you, Spooky Boo. Oh, Hell yeah. yeah. Michael in Woodsboro said, I think maybe Jill or uh, Mickey, neither of them was shot in the head. They could be alive. Maybe Jill or Mikey, neither one of them was shot in the head, so they could be alive. I don't know. Maybe, dude. Maybe. You never know. It would be cool to see Emma Roberts come back. I like her. I especially like her as a villain. Yeah, I do too. 85 Dark Sparkles completely shot down Spooky Boo and my theory down and said, nope. It has been said by everyone that Nev Campbell, but not Neve, will no longer be in the Scream franchise. So her twin might. Five was her final film, which is exactly, is what I'm saying, what the killer would want you to think. <laughs> That's true. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that is. We have, a, we have two more quick... Mark Loves Horror said Sam ends up being one of the ghost face reveals because she can't get away from her past family history. Spoiler alert, Sam is Billy Loomis's illegitimate daughter. So she has kind of like serial killer blood coursing through her veins. <laughs> so those are some pretty good guesses. Let's talk about the rules. The rules! Rules to successfully survive a horror movie. You may not survive the horror movie if you have sex. You may not survive the horror movie if you drink or do drugs. And you may not survive the horror movie if you say, I'll be right back. Hello? Who's there? Scream 2. <laughs> rules to survive a horror movie sequel. The body count is always bigger. The death scenes are always more elaborate with more blood and gore. Randy starts to describe the third rule. If you want your film to become a successful franchise, never ever. Before being interrupted by Dewey. However, the film's original teaser trailer featured an extended version of the rule scene, which reveals that originally the third rule was supposed to be. Never ever under any circumstances assume the killer is dead. This referenced Randy's last 
line in the first scream, which stated that a killer always comes back to life for one last scare. The lack of a third rule in the film's final cut was a deliberate in-joke by the crew, referencing the fact that it is impossible to ensure that a horror franchise will be successful. (laughs) Scream 3. Rules to successfully survive the last chapter of a horror movie trilogy. You've got a killer who's going to be superhuman. Stabbing him won't work. Shooting him won't work. Basically, in the third one, you got to cryogenically freeze his head, decapitate him, or blow him up. Anyone, including the main character, can die. This means you, Sid. The past will come back to bite you in the ass. Whatever you think you know about the past, forget it. The past is not at rest. Any sins you think were committed in the past are about to break out and destroy you. Although in the first few drafts, there was a fourth rule, never be alone, but it was taken out because Gail immediately goes off alone afterwards. Although in the first few drafts, there was a fourth rule, never be alone, but it was taken out because Gail immediately goes off alone afterwards. Scream 4, rules to successfully survive a horror movie remake. Don't fuck with the original. The death scenes have to be way more extreme. Unexpected is the new cliche. Virgins can die now. New versions are always 2.0. So the latest technology is always involved and integral to the plot. This means the killer may start filming the murders. You have to have an opening sequence. If you want to survive a modern day horror movie, you pretty much have to be gay. If you're gay, you survive? Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, now we know how to cheat the system. Yeah, it's the overcorrection of the uh, original tropes. It's awesome. Scream 5. Rules to successfully survive a horror movie, remember? Scream 5. Rules to successfully survive a horror movie. Never trust your love interest. The killer always has something to do with the past. The first victim always has a circle of friends that the killer is a part of. The movie always goes back to the original. Never fuck with the daughter of a serial killer. Scream 6. Tara, Sam, and Chad reveal through video everything we need to know how to stay alive. Charge your phone in case you need to call for help, but don't answer it if it rings. Check all the dark stairs. Don't leave your apartment. Delete your delivery apps. Keep alert. Similar to the rules of surviving a horror, the killers seem to adhere to a code, albeit sparingly in some examples. In Scream 2, killers kill people who share the names with the victims from the first installments. Examples, Maureen, Stephen, and Casey. In Scream 3, the killer murders in the Stab 3 kill order, and each kill leaves behind a picture of teenage Maureen Prescott, Sydney's mom. In Scream 4, the killer records the deaths and uploads them to the internet. In Scream 5, even though it's just (laughs) Scream, the killer attacks people related to the original victims or killers. Example, Stu's nephew Vince, Billy's illegitimate daughter Sam, Randy's nephews Mindy and Chad. So Scream 6, like we said, coming out March 10th. I'm going to be seeing it alone and I'm super stoked. I'll be posting a bonus YouTube video of my personal review after I see it. So that's going to be a lot of fun. You guys can check that out on our YouTube. I am going to try to post it within a day after, you know, a couple hours after I see it. So you guys should be able to see it as soon as the movie, as soon as you watch it. So yay, I can't wait to hear everyone's opinions. I'm really excited about it. We are going to take a quick break and when we come back, we're going to talk about a few other horror titles you can enjoy as well as some true crime. Hey there, ghoul fiends. It's Ash from Creepy Tapas. 
If you know me, you know I love to spend countless hours browsing independent businesses, putting things in my shopping cart that I only buy once a year when I spend (laughs) all of my money supporting all of your businesses. Well, I found the cutest little online shop on Etsy called Wick of the Wood. Wick of the Wood specializes in unique accent candles with an inventory that consists of -of one-of-a-kind handmade candles that can fit in a variety of spaces and aesthetics. Wick of the Wood always has their eye out for new candle molds, thrifted containers, and other inspiration. The idea that everyone can have a candle that fits whatever quirky space they need inspires Wick of the Wood to think outside the candle mold and make any idea you might have a reality. Since she was a little girl, the owner has always dreamt of having a little shop where she could sell her handmade items. Under the watchful eye of her dog, she lovingly handmakes each item, packages them, and mails them to you from Seattle, Washington. But you don't have to take it from me. Here are some testimonials from several happy Wick of the Wood customers. Susie says, five stars. I've ordered from this shop, and every time it's an amazing experience. Everything smells amazing, and the packaging is always so cute and functional. This is my favorite candle shop. Tandra also gives Wick of the Wood five stars. These are so cool. I only burned three, so I could keep one for show. Another five stars from Duar, who says, The seller is so kind. Beautifully packaged. The candles smell and look amazing. Bought it for my bestie, Rumi, and she loves it. Thank you, and thank you for the freebies, too. Ooh, freebies. Those are just a few of the amazing reviews over at Wick of the Wood. I ordered a few for Christmas, and I cannot wait to smell them and give them as gifts. Guess what you're getting for Christmas? Mm-hmm. Wick a candle. Of the wood. <laughs> I'm especially excited about these adorable poison apple candles. They are so freaking adorable and spooky. I love it. You can check out Wick of the Wood at Etsy.com shop Wick of the Wood. Follow Wick of the Wood on Twitter at Wick of the Wood. Wick of the Wood. Really unique candles. Check them out. Wick of the wood, you really should. They're on Etsy. Hey, hey, hey. Give them a sniff. (laughs) Hello, I'm Kona Gallagher. And I'm Ethan Flick. We're the husband and wife team behind the True Crime Podcast, and then they were gone. We're a weekly show that covers unsolved missing persons cases. These are cases that you, the listener, can have an impact on. That's right. Each week, we bring you a new case of someone who has gone missing and needs their story told. Some of the people you may have heard of, like Kristen Smart or Braceless Pisa. But we also bring you missing people of color and other cases that haven't gotten the mainstream attention that they deserve. We cover the missing person's life and delve into the investigation and media coverage. One thing that we've learned in the nearly two years of doing this podcast is that a lot of these cases could be solved if pressure was put on the investigative agencies to do more. Our hope is that by getting these stories out there, you'll help us put that pressure on them. So come along with us as we tell these stories, and maybe you hold the key to bringing someone home. And Then They Were Gone is a proud member of the Darkcast Network and Spreaker Prime. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, or your favorite podcast app. Welcome back, ghoul fiends. Welcome back. So I actually watched... All of these movies. Whoop, whoop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Jordan kind of wrote this episode. So the movies, I was kind of, I was at the mercy of you. I was, ah. what is Jordan making me watch? And I'm glad you did make me watch them because it was an interesting couple days. Right. The first one we had on our list is. Don't hang up. 
Don't Hang Up is a 2016 horror thriller film written by Joe Johnson and directed by Alexis Waysbrut and Damien Mace. Best friends Sam and Brady really enjoy fooling people, so much that they started a YouTube prank channel together. One night while hanging out, drinking, and making prank calls, the friends receive a call from a mysterious man, Mr. Lee. Mr. Lee does not find them amusing. The man turns their shenanigans against them, and the jokesters become the joke. Mr. Lee reveals that he knows their names, addresses, and intimate details of their lives. He gives the duo a single command, don't hang up, then proceeds to subject them to a night of pure terror with deadly consequences. (laughs) Have you seen this one, pal? I have, but it was a long time ago. It was uh, 2016. But it felt very uh, early. Like it felt, if you told me that it was 2006, I might have believed you. (laughs) Stylistically, it was a very early aughts kind of movie. But that's not to say I didn't enjoy it. I mean, I guessed the plot. I knew within the first 10 minutes of the movie who, I mean, you know, it's not. I mean, it's not deep. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Like it's, you know, the, the twists are all things that. Uh, it's streaming on Peacock. If you guys want to check it out, it's only 90 minutes. So, you know, it's worth it's worth a watch. Yeah, why not? It's fun. When a Stranger Calls. The original When a Stranger Calls is a 1979 psychological thriller written and directed by Fred Walton and co-written by Steve Feek. It follows a young woman, Jill, who's terrorized by a psycho killer's calls while she's babysitting. The menacing killer asks... Have you checked on the children? Creeped out and fearing for her safety, she calls the police only for them to discover that the calls are coming from inside the house. Bum, bum, <laughs> no. <laughs> then after spending seven years in a psychiatric facility, the killer breaks out and tracks down Jill to continue the torment. It was redone in 2006. The film was rewritten by Jake Wad, Wade Wad, <laughs> Jake Wad. <laughs> You're a Jake Wad. Mom's a Jake Wad. Redone in 2006, the film was rewritten by Jake Wade Wall. <laughs> the film was rewritten by Jake Wade Wall with use of the original 1979 screenplay. The story, staying true to the original, is about a teenage girl, Jill, who is babysitting for a wealthy family. When she arrives, the two kids are already asleep, and as soon as the parents leave, she starts to receive bizarre phone calls. At first, the calls are silent other than breathing, but when an ominous voice asks, have you checked on the children, she freaks out and calls the police. When the police trace the calls to inside the house, she has to fight for her life to protect the children from the psychotic intruder. While there are many differences in the overall plots of these movies, you can't deny the similarities. Both are excellent films full of tension and suspense and are definitely worth the watch. Yeah, they are. I liked Mm -hmm. both of them. I really enjoyed Carol Kane in the first one. She's a lot of fun. She's the woman from Princess Bride. I'm not a witch, I'm your wife, and I'm not even sure if I want to be that anymore. (laughs) that lady okay i got you dead tone under the title 75 is a 2007 american slasher film directed and written by brian hooks and dion taylor as final exams at the prestigious university of dre skill are wrapping up and the semester has ended for students it's time to party 
The crew, as they are known around campus, are invited to a wealthy classmate's mansion in Colorado. A low-key evening of hanging out and prank phone calls becomes an intense game of survival and escape when one of the crew accidentally calls the wrong person. You wrote that you haven't seen this one. Nope, haven't. But it's rated R for pervasive and strong bloody violence, language, sexual content, and drug use. And you said, so it might be all right. Ha ha. I did say that. <laughs> yes. There's a sequence in the beginning that is trying to make it look like it was shot. Um, you know, they try to stylistically be in like the late 80s. And uh, it it just looked really low budget to me. Um, I feel like that's one of those things like I didn't like about the movie. It just didn't look very didn't look very good. I feel like if you didn't have the budget to pull it off, great. Then doing it, trying to do it makes it look kind of cheap to me. Um, And uh, I felt, I felt that way about some of the effects, like the movie itself, like, no, it's shot reasonably. Everyone did their job. Like it was fine, but there was nothing like, you know, nothing spectacular. Yeah. Well, (laughs) strong, bloody violence. Yeah. Oh, there definitely was. Yeah. I think you'd like it. I I didn't hate it. Like it was worth, you know, it was worth a watch. Yeah, yeah. And you know, you'll like it because, you know, you've got you've got that really fun element where the killer overexplains himself at the end that'll make you laugh. Oh, you know. Haven't you been paying attention? Don't you see what society has done? (laughs) Yeah, love a good mansplaining. Every day I have to sit and watch these people. (laughs) Do you remember Cranky Anchors? I do. That show was fucking hilarious. Oh, my God. I loved that show. I loved it. They were puppets. If you're not familiar, it was so funny. Yep. Uh, Bunch of puppets making prank calls. Mm-hmm. We are talking about Scream today in honor of the newest installment from the Scream franchise, Scream 6. We thought it only made sense to cover prank calls and phone harassment. Yep. Some people might take for granted the way that Jordan and I grew up. Uh, we didn't have the ability to see who was calling. We didn't have the call waiting, you know. The call wait. I remember when that shit came out. <laughs> that was amazing. I was all amazed that I could see who was calling. The caller ID was incredible. But then people mm. would press star 67 to, like, mm. block. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you'd have to hit star 69 to unblock it. No, you couldn't unblock it. If they press star 67, star 69 wouldn't work. Oh, uh, star 69 was just if you didn't have a caller ID and wanted to know who called, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then it would tell you. Does anybody even know what we're talking about? Probably not. Nope. Do the kids know what the star 67 was? If there is anyone <laughs> under the age of like 30 listening to this, they probably have no idea what we're talking about. Yeah, maybe even a little older than that. Oh, God. Stop. Kids don't know how to use rotary phones anymore. They don't. And you know what's wild, too? They don't have lines that somebody can just snip. Like, no one can just, like, snip your cell phone connection. Yeah, you can get one of those service blocker things, though. Is that, would that, yeah? Huh. Yeah. When they have wireless jammers, you just flip a switch and it jams the wireless jammer. Yes, but growing up in the 90s, long before the age of cell phones and even before caller ID, back when it was satisfying to hang up on someone, slam it. Hear that bell ring? Get that? Mm. There was a physical bell, guys. It was in the phone. Yeah. So if when you slammed the phone down to hang up on somebody, it was like slamming a door. Like it had this really big like, and then it would be like, like you would. Yeah. Kind of like you smacked a desk bell. Yeah. Yeah. 
You yeah. can't nowadays. You like, fuck really your phone fuck up. You. It's yeah. Not don't very slam good. your iPhone down. It'll hurt it. No, no. <laughs> it's delicate and expensive. Phones weren't thousands of dollars then either, though. They were not that expensive. We had a burger phone like Bob's Burgers. Ah, uh, nice. It was really uncomfortable, and it would leave like little sesame seed imprints on you if you like. I could imagine. And people would leave messages on your answering machine and you would have to come home and press the button. Yeah. God, we had an answering machine. It was the worst. Yeah, dude. Everybody can hear your messages. Mm-hmm. Airing a line with the whole family. Yeah, mm-hmm. man. Y'all have no idea walking around seven years old with damn cell phones. Crazy. We had a really fun game that we used to play at sleepovers. Jordan, do you have any personal experience in that department? I feel like you do. <laughs> with prank calls? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, we prank called people. It might not even really been me on the phone. It might have been somebody else, and I was just listening in. I was the one on the phone frequently because I thought it was funny, but I never knew when to uh, when to call it quits. There was always somebody like, hang up, hang up, and then they would like reach over and hang up. You know, I don't think we ever really had a plan behind it. We just called like random restaurants out of the phone book. <sighs> Y'all remember phone books? Big old thick motherfuckers. I think they still make them. You just Do have they? to like. They're real small, though, them. and it's just businesses. Yeah. Mm, I mean, I guess there's still a few residential phone numbers out there, but phone books are tiny now. They should have yellow pages of people's social media tags. Now, God. If that shit comes out, I want the money. I'll be so mad if I don't get the money for that. I need to feed my baby chihuahua. They wouldn't do something like that. They wouldn't do that. No, that would be awful. Can you imagine? Right? How oh, do you even man. sort through that nonsense? <laughs> yeah, we used to, it was similar. We would call uh, businesses, same kind of deal. Trons. Yeah. You know, Probably order. complaining about coming through the drive-thru or something. Like, I would just make up, like, ridiculous nonsense with silly accents. And I would just, like, keep going and going and going and going. And my friends would be like, yeah, I <laughs> yeah dickheads 10 of ours too <laughs> yeah <laughs> well it was all just fun and games nothing malicious you know it's basically what we did for fun at parties before the internet yeah when there was nothing else to do but of course we can't have anything nice and some assholes out there had to destroy these innocent phone games they took the joke way too far and turned prank calling into a cruel and devious act which is now punishable by law. These incredible hoaxes led to real consequences for the victims. Property damage, humiliating acts, and even sexual assault and rape. Well, these guys here, they take the fun out of prank calls. Perhaps you've heard of them. Prank net. Content warning. Some of this is uh, <laughs> it's a little it's a little rough. You know, a little fucked up. Yeah, they're a little fucked up. A Canadian-based anonymous virtual community that was involved in a string of malicious pranks and instances of telephone harassment between 2009 and 2011. Founded by a man that referred to himself only as Dex, and with everything coordinated through an online chat room, these calls convinced unsuspecting employees or customers to cause damage to hotels and fast food restaurants. Linked to nearly 60 separate incidences, PrankNet members were responsible for more than $60,000 in damages. Members posing as authority figures such as fire alarm company reps or hotel management would call unsuspecting employees or customers and convince them that it was necessary to break windows, TVs, mirrors, pull fire alarms, or set off sprinklers. When property damage wasn't doing it for them, sometimes they would trick people into humiliating or violating acts, like stripping naked or drinking human urine. Blech. Yeah. Like I said, PrankNet was linked to about 60 of these hoax calls, and we can't possibly mention each one here. You know, I guess we could do like a three-hour episode. <laughs> we, we could go like scream and just go real deep on it. 
I mean, there were a ton of them, and they were fucked up. But a lot of them were kind of repetitive, too. Like, it was the same stuff that they were doing. It was just in different hotels. or There was a whole lot of property right, damage. Right. Well, here are the few most fucked up pranks they pulled. In February 2009, two members, Dex and Slayer, called a KFC in Manchester, New Hampshire, pretending to be corporate managers. They convinced the three female employees that there was a malfunction with their fire suppression system and that chemicals had been sprayed all over the building. Dex told the employees these chemicals were very dangerous and could cause severe and painful burns on their skin. They needed to follow his exact instructions. The three women needed to go outside and take all their clothes off before the chemicals penetrated them. Now, he said, this is going to sound strange, but you need to trust him. Next, they needed to urinate on themselves. Dex claimed these burns were similar to jellyfish stings, and it was the only way to neutralize it. It took some convincing, but these poor women actually did it outside in the cold of winter, naked and peeing on themselves. That's super fucked up, dude. That is super fucked up. Even more fucked up, a few months later, this asshole calls back posing as an insurance adjuster and had the victims describe the incident while PrankNet members listened. Yeah. Right? Really pouring salt in the wound there. Yeah, it's terrible. It is terrible. These people don't feel like guilty every single fucking day after this shit. I hope I hope some like, you know, I always hope that people move on and have peace. But then sometimes stories like that, I'm like, maybe you need to think for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> maybe you, you need to sit over there and one. think about yeah. what you've done. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's not cool, child. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. no, no, no. In May 2009, Dex called a Hampton Inn in York, Nebraska and coerced an employee into setting off the fire alarm. As guests made their way to the lobby, he gave the desk clerk bogus instructions on how to turn off the alarm. He claimed that to avoid fines, the fire department should not be called. But when the instructions didn't shut down the system, Dex told the clerk that to override the alarm system, they would need to break out the front window of the lobby. One of the guests, a truck driver, volunteered for the task and drove his semi-truck right through the front door. In June of that same year, similar prank calls were made to a Holiday Inn Express in Conway, Arkansas, and a Comfort Suites in Gadsden, Alabama. In July 2009, a PrankNet member called a guest's room at the Hilton in Orlando, Florida, and claimed they were a hotel management and that there was a gas leak in their room. The family staying there was coerced into breaking windows with the lid off their toilet and to throw the mattress out of the broken windows. There were so many... Of those incidences where they would call and get people to damage hotel rooms because of gas leaks or, I don't know, they had been exposed to some kind of germ or, I don't know, there's hidden cameras in your mirrors. Like, it's so many different ways they got people to destroy things. It was insane. (laughs) Dicks. Right? I mean, I get that you're just charging some corporation money, but those people probably got in trouble. At least yeah. some of them. Oh, I bet they did. And yeah. I'm sure they had to pay for that shit. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that was not a victimless crime, I'm sure. No. In July 2010, a member who went by Markle tricked a front desk clerk at the Homewood Suites in Lexington, Kentucky, into drinking a guest's tinkle. <laughs> I put tinkle on there. Just Tinkle. 
<laughs> a little guest tangle. <laughs> First, the guest was called and told by who they thought was hotel staff that due to a possible room contamination, they had been exposed to hepatitis C. Fortunately, though, there was a doctor on site and that if they could pee in a cup, it could be analyzed. All the guests needed to do was to bring the cup of urine to the front desk and the doctor would get it. Then the desk clerk was called, and this is where it gets really gross. They were told there was a, a Martinelli Cider representative staying at the hotel, and they were going to bring a sample down for the clerk to try. After trying it and telling the caller how nasty it was, Markle informed her that she had just drunk that guest's pee. Oh my God, I would fucking puke. Uh-huh. I can't, yeah, no, it's it's legit making me a little like ugh, nauseous, like even just right? thinking about that. That's really gross. That's so fucked up. That's really and what, fucked. You know, who the fuck thinks to do something like that? Uh, it's just nasty. That nasty is nasty. People. Like, what do you get out of tricking somebody into drinking somebody else's pee? What do you get out of that? <laughs> I don't. I don't get it. No, thank you. Mm -mm. Well, November 2010, an elderly man staying at a Motel 6 in Spartanburg, South Carolina, was tricked by a prank net member posing as a hotel administrator. He was told that supposedly a previous guest had planted hidden cameras all over the room and that he needed to smash the TV and all the mirrors in the room to destroy the cameras. It's just, wow. Yeah, that was all of the incidences that I, because most of them were, again, they were kind of repetitive. A lot of them took place in hotel rooms and it was either gas leaks or cameras or this or that. But they all involved them breaking windows. Some of them would have them throw the TV out the window. Some would have them throw the mattress out the window or hell, there was one. They had some guy burrow into the room next door to him because they said somebody was trapped in there. Jesus. Yeah, it was fucking crazy. It amazes me the ridiculous things people will do. Yeah. It it really makes you think about how you might react in those type of situations. Yeah, you know, it does. And I really would like to think that I wouldn't fall for it, but I've never been in that situation. Yeah, I don't know. Is is uh super convincing because they had so I mean so many people so many times. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. It's one of those things, right? You'd be surprised how much power an alleged authority figure could have over you if you were put on the spot. Speaking of... The Milgram Experiment. The 1961 Milgram Experiments on Obedience to Authority were a series of social experiments conducted by Yale University psychologist Stanley Milgram. This study measured the willingness of its participants, 40 men aged 20 to 50 from different backgrounds, to obey an authority figure who was instructing them to perform questionable acts. Participants were told they were assisting in an unrelated experiment where they had to administer electric shocks to a student. They were instructed to ask questions to the student and if their answer was wrong, to shock them. These fake shocks were gradually increased with each wrong answer, up to potentially deadly levels if they had been real. This study found, unexpectedly, that a very high percentage of subjects would fully obey instructions. Every participant administered up to 300 volts, and 65% went all the way to the full 450, which would most definitely kill someone, because... It was for no reason, just because an alleged authority figure told them that's what they had to do. They were just following the directions. Yeah. You know, the conductor of the experiment was telling them to keep going. Yeah. So even though they were questioning it or even if they did question it, they kept going. 
what what can you do what can mm, you do i don't know i don't know what i would do follow rules though so <laughs> i feel like you would be smart enough to be like 300 volts is a lot and like, like why am I'm i going to do that yeah like, if and- you want to continue this experiment you can push that button but i'm not going to <laughs> even with a low shock like I mean, it was all fake, but the people who were doing it did not know that. Right, right. No, they they thought that it was real. And they were, like, straight up willing to kill somebody because the, you know, head of the experiment told them to do it. All I can think is that maybe they didn't know what, like, what it was. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? No, it's pretty obvious what was going on. No, like, they didn't understand voltage. Like, they Uh, thought that it wasn't as much as it was. Well, but every time they would shock the student or fake shock the student, they would like scream and beg for him to stop. And oh, yeah, like there was there was reason for them to want to stop. But they kept going because they were told to. Yes, because they were told to. No, I wouldn't be able to do it. I think I remember there was a movie about that. And I was pretty sure that the one that I saw, like there were women who refused to to do it but like the men were you know we're all willing but that might have just been something in the movie well we have a lot more empathy we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back we're gonna go super dark discussing a dark phone scam that went on for years stay with us be right back there i'm regina king the evil queen and i'm lynn Rosscamp, the docent of darkness and we're the hosts of disturbing interests do you get excited about mummies decorating skulls obsess over the loss of the library of alexandria even though it was lost in a different age do you kill the conversation with your in-depth serial killer knowledge facts about items made out of human skin or have a strange longing to know the softer side of mothman Have you spent an objectively disproportionate amount of time studying the life of H.H. Holmes? Oh, I I wouldn't know anybody like that. No, certainly not. Well, I mean, we did call our podcast Disturbing Interest for a reason. That's right. We've got them. And we are doing you the favor of keeping the questions like, at what temperature does it take to destroy a cadaver out of your browsing history? Well, we hope. Because with us, you might be disturbed. But you're not alone. You can find us on any podcasting platform under Disturbing Interest or check us out online at disturbinginterest.com. Hey, y'all. This is Ash from Creepy Tapas Podcast. There are a few places selling stickers these days, but I found a small business on Etsy called Snarky Sticker Lady, and I am in love with her stuff. We all love snark around here on the Darkcast Network. When I looked at the shop, I was surprised because she has some really funny stickers. The owner, Allison, knows that pride is not a sin, and she designed a line of stickers for friends of the LGBTQIA community. Allison has said of her own business... 
I love stickers. I love making stickers. I love putting stickers on everything. I started making stickers because I wanted some snarky, smart-ass stickers, and nobody had them. I need my sarcastic flag to fly, honey. So after making some snarky stickers, I started making lots of other types of stickers, too. As a loyal friend to the LGBTQIA community, I wanted some stickers to show how I feel, so I made them. Ha! Maybe you'd like to show how you feel, too. All sticker designs are welcome in my shop. Just send your ideas in. All of Allison's stickers are vinyl and laminated, so they are water-resistant and will last a really long time. Check her out on Etsy at etsy.com shop snarky sticker lady. Hey, but up, boop, boo, I want to get snarky with you, snarky sticker lady on Etsy. Welcome back, ghoul fiends. We are headed into our final course here on Creepy Tapas, which is a massive pool of black coffee and despair. Um, listener discretion is advised. The strip search call scam. The strip search phone call scam was a series of horrible phone harassment incidents starting in 1994 and continued over a 10-year period. With every call, a man posing as a police officer would contact a manager or supervisor and would recruit their help in detaining an employee or customer suspected of a crime, usually theft or drug possession. He would provide a generic description of the suspect, usually a young female employee, but a few of the victims were male. After the manager had figured out who fit the description, they would be asked to conduct a search of the suspected person. The assignment would initially start as a strip search before gradually becoming more invasive and sexual in nature as the investigation continued. Eventually, the caller would have full compliance from the manager to the point that they would do almost anything they asked, including spanking, kissing, inappropriate touching, oral sex, and even assault and rape. Many of the situations would last hours before either of the participants of the search realized the call was a hoax or by the intervention of a bystander. In most of these cases, these managers faced criminal charges and had to register as sex offenders. More than 70 of these prank calls were reported in 30 different states. It wasn't until the 2004 incident that made the police connect all these crimes and search out who was responsible. Not that this particular incident is more important than any other victims and their stories, but this poor girl's entire assault was caught on a security camera in the manager's office. It really brought to light what was happening to these poor people. Oh my God, yeah. I I can't imagine. I can't either. God, all of these poor people, like, I mean, how how would you react if your fucking manager pulled you back into the office and insisted that the cops were telling them to search you and that you had to get naked? Like, okay, I don't. I don't know the path. I don't know how I would react. <laughs> I'd probably be like, nah, I gotta go. <laughs> yeah, I'd be like, no, I'm leaving. No, <laughs> I'd be like, go. if you're if y'all are gonna arrest me, like they're gonna call the cops, great. Yeah, we tell them uh, the here's station. my address. Yeah. <laughs> I call their bluff on it, I think. Because that, yeah. that shit would go my spidey sense, I feel like, would go off on that. Yeah, I feel like <laughs> mine would too, but at the same time, like who knows? 70 of these incidences. Like mm-hmm. 70 different people fell for it and harassed somebody yep. and victimized some poor random young person or cu- like customers. It's yeah, it's really fucked up. And from what I could understand, none of the accusations 
were even in grand larceny territory. Like it was all, you know, this girl stole $20. Like it was something really like simple possession, tiny. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Really weird. On April 9th, 2004, Louise Ogborn, an 18-year-old working at a McDonald's in Mount Washington, Kentucky, was horrifically mistreated in the back office of the restaurant at the request of a caller claiming to be a police officer. Officer Scott. Ugh. The case is pretty famous as pa- and has been covered quite a bit. Uh, Don't Pick Up the Phone on Netflix is based on the whole ordeal. There's also a fictionalized account called Compliance. It's all over the place. So we're not going to go into the details, but this young woman was detained for three and a half hours, naked and terrified, being physically and sexually assaulted by the hands of the management. And oddly enough, the manager's fiance, which is the part that really blows my mind. Yeah. Like story. Yeah. Like you should have questioned it at that point. Like, why yeah. am I bringing in other people to keep mm-hmm. an eye on this poor naked girl standing in the office? Yeah, why are the police asking me to conduct a full cavity search? I mean, this guy had her doing fucking jumping jacks naked, standing up in the chair, bending over. He would cavity searches, like all kinds of terrible, terrible shit to this girl for hours. And it was absolutely horrible. It was hard to read. Yeah, no, it's, it was it's... really hard to read. Louise Ogborn, she uh, won a. T- civil suit she sued mcdonald's i'm pretty sure oh yeah yes i remember you'd mentioned that at least she got like four and a half million dollars or something like that or something yeah they settled yeah yeah good for her man good for her well through an extensive investigation the mount washington police traced all of these calls back to at&t calling cards sold in panama city florida Coordinating with the Panama City Police, they tracked serial numbers and watched tons of store surveillance footage before they found the purchaser of these cards. Finally, they found it. The purchaser was wearing a correctional officer's uniform, the kind used by a private security firm, Corrections Corporation of America. After contacting the security firm's human resource department, they finally discovered the buyer of the calling cards as David Richard Stewart. (laughs) David Dick. (laughs) David Dick. Dick Stort. <laughs> he was arrested. And during questioning, Dick Stort insisted that he had never bought a calling card. But the detectives found one in his house. And it was used to call nine restaurants in the last year. So I don't know. How about that? That's kind of weird. I mean, it seems like pretty good evidence. <laughs> yeah. Well, Stewart was Stewart Dick Stort was extradited to Kentucky on charges of impersonating an officer, solicitation, and sodomy. So there you go. On Halloween night, October 2006, he was acquitted of all charges. I don't know why I said Halloween night. It was probably during the day when the courts were open. Yeah, probably Halloween day. Well, when I see October 31st, I just have to Halloween. <laughs> Halloween. It was Halloween evening. <laughs> it was a full moon. Both the defense and prosecution speculated that the lack of direct evidence might have led the jury to find him not guilty. However, old Dextart remained a suspect in similar cases all over the country. Police did state later, though, that after his arrest, the scam calls just suspiciously stopped hmm yeah so it was mm. it was it was probably him it probably was him i'm gonna take 
I'm going to take a really wild guess. Yeah, it was probably him. I mean, I feel like that. I feel like they had plenty of evidence. And apparently they also found a bunch of like applications where this guy had tried to be a police officer multiple times and failed exams. And I don't know. He just seemed so he like knew a lot t- about how to make the right sounds. Yeah. Like, yeah, what words to use and how to control a situation. And, you know, and a, as a correctionals officer, he had to control situations anyways. But I feel like the damning evidence, they found a calling card that had been linked yeah. to nine restaurants all over the country that had similar calls. <laughs> like, how is that not concrete evidence? <laughs> You know, um, I mean, they didn't find the card that was linked to Kentucky. I guess that's the thing is that in the court of law, they're like, okay, but what are you charging him with? Like, because if you're saying that you're charging him with a Kentucky call, then I need material evidence that says he called Kentucky. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you can't build a case because I think, I think, and if you're an attorney and you're hearing this, maybe you can point us in the right direction. Uh, write us <laughs> creepytapas at gmail.com. I would love I mean, to He's know. already got off now. <laughs> I I feel like, though, that that every incident would be a separate charge that was filed. Oh, yeah, and, that is true. You know, so, so even. Multiple states. Yeah. Oh, my God. Different yeah. States. Fuck. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Oof. 30 different ones you know it was really smart and that was that was probably some more of that applied knowledge that he had from you know all the correctional officer training and this and that like you know uh my partner's stepdad is a cop and he says it's like nine tenths paperwork well so you get to know like the legal system pretty well because you're you know there's a lot of paperwork involved in all that shit yeah I think you so did. I'm it. sure COs have to do a fair amount too. And them, you know, I'm sure they got to know some stuff. Um, and I think it's I, fucked up that he victimized that many fucking people and got away with it. Fuck him for that. Yeah. And for, you know, who knows even why? Like, it's such a, you're not getting to see it. I, I think it's just a power thing. He knows yeah. that he's controlling it. Ugh, it's so gross. It's so I, gross. It is. It's disgusting. Absolutely and disgusting. To have that be like your kink. It's fucked up. Yeah, dude. No, sir. I don't like it. Mm-mm, no, sir. I don't like it either. <laughs> um, and I, I'm glad that uh, that one of the survivors at least has been like super duper vocal about how you know she's healed through the journey and like she's really come out on the other side of it. And she, like her experience was incredibly traumatic. It involved a sexual assault, and you know. I think it's great that she's that she's doing great in spite of it. Uh, talk about your your trust with authority being completely fucking jackhammered. No, oh, yeah, I mean, no fucking kidding. I'd be like, okay, well, I don't trust the police. I don't trust my bosses. I don't trust. Right. I can't have a job. Like, yeah, that would shake you for a while. You know. Yeah, really long fucking time. Yeah. So I'm glad she saw some restitution, and I'm glad that she's uh, found a little bit of peace. Well, that's our show. Don't do it. Don't do the prank phone calls. No, well, no, not no. anymore because you can't get away with it. Yeah, <laughs> and don't do those mean ass pranks, anyways. Jokes are fun. Yeah, you yeah. Call somebody, make a joke, do it to one of your friends. There was one at the beginning of uh, Dead Tone, that '75 movie, and he they were kids, and he's like, they called this lady. Their last name was Whitehead in the phone book, and they were like, "Hey, is this Mrs. Blackhead?" And she's like. Um, this is Mrs. Whitehead. And he goes, Oh, sorry, I guess I meant the other pimple. Huh? And I uh, yeah. 
when you call people and you tell some stupid joke yeah. about their name or, you know, irrelevant yeah. bullshit. Whatever. It was, you all, know. it was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking fun. You can't do that shit anymore because caller ID ruined it. <laughs> yeah. Caller ID and assholes all killed it. <laughs> mm, yeah. The assholes actually killed it. Caller ID could be. It's fine. <laughs> well, thank you for listening, guys. We are excited to bring some exciting new episodes to you coming up this month. We have our movie of the month, which is going to be the platform. Thank you so much to Void Between Worlds on Instagram for submitting that to us. I can't wait to watch that. I'm going to be watching that this week. I'm super stoked. Yeah, I guess I need to watch it too. Give us a follow on YouTube. We are going to be sharing all of our episodes as well as the occasional exclusive review. Uh, The first of which is going to be me talking about Scream and I can't wait. So I will see you on YouTube at Creepy Tapas. You can follow us on Instagram where Jordan and I are both incredibly active. We're there all the time. Jordan's got the TikTok uh, where she also posts these really dope clips that are really funny. Maybe you can make videos to our audios. (laughs) Maybe just maybe. Don't forget, guys, if you want to hear more amazing podcasts, check out www.darkcastnetwork.com. Click on shows and you can learn all about the other fantastic friends on our network. Thanks again, guys. Thanks. See you next week. Bye. Bye. If you want to keep up on things, you can hit us up on all social media. All of them. At? Creepy Tapas. That's right. (laughs) We're just Creepy Tapas all over the damn place. (laughs) Creepy Tapas is a free podcast, and we intend to keep it that way. But if you like what you hear and want to support us, please like, rate, and review. It helps us grow so we can keep serving our tiny tastes of terror to amazing listeners like you. We would love to hear from you, so send us your personal stories to creepytapas at gmail.com. We are self-written and recorded with production by Freddy Cat Productions, music by Kevin McLeod, and graphics by Panther Creek Graphics. Darkcast Network. Indie pods with a dark side.